Welcome to my podcast, Leaving Religion and Those We Leave Behind. I am your host, Amanda Joy Loveland. And as always, I am so honored that you are here and so grateful. I have had some events transpire in my life the last few weeks that have really created the opportunity to reflect back at my life and just the things that have unfolded and transpired. And this podcast is one of those. It's something that I never in a million years thought I would be doing. And yet here I am. And not only did I share my story and get to share part of me with you, but also so many other beautiful, beautiful, vulnerable stories. And I never thought I would be doing this. And it is one of the greatest gifts in my life right now. And I'm truly, truly grateful for it and grateful for each of you for showing up and for listening. And if you're sharing, thank you for sharing. There's so many people that need this and need to feel that support, that community of knowing that they're not alone. So if you haven't yet, please leave me a review. It assists the podcast in getting further seen for those that are searching and seeking. And I love sending out emails with free freebies, just things, insight that I'm learning and things that I'd love to share with you. So if you haven't yet subscribed, head over to my website, amandajoyloveland.com. And I am excited to announce that I will be relaunching my book, Love and the Spaces in Between, will be coming out most likely in the beginning of December. So just a few weeks from now. And this is a book that really goes into love and relationships that I've experienced and assisting you in hopefully finding your perfect person. A lot of us have had relationship trauma or even childhood trauma that impacts our relationships. And with this book, I'm actually and have spending a lot of time developing um, a quiz of and some courses, some online courses. And when that comes live, if you're on my email list, you'll be the first to know. And there'll be some freebies along with that. So I'm really, really excited about, about that new announcement. Without further ado, I am thrilled to be sitting down with someone that I have known for a very, very long time. He knew me when I was a young teenager. So it's quite beautiful to reconnect in this space. And I was really honored to sit down with Nigel Bristow. Well, hello. I'm sitting with Nigel Bristow today. And I appreciate you spending the time and driving all this way to sit with me and share your story. I know this is vulnerable. And I just appreciate you saying yes to this because it's it's a pretty powerful thing to say yes well, thanks, Amanda. I appreciate being invited. I'm looking forward to telling the story and seeing what comes out. Yeah, I know. It's always we will have different versions of our head in our head, right? Of, right. What do I want to say? And then what actually happens is always a little different, but it usually is a lot more beautiful than we think. So, yeah. yeah. Now you are from South, South Africa. Africa. Okay. And you guys have been in the States how long? About 35 years. Wow. Did you first move to Orem? We lived in Provo for the first six years or so, and then we moved to Orem, um, a little lower down the hill from where we ended up when we moved into your ward around 94, I think it was. 
Wow. Yeah, so this is how I know you is from, I'm like, man, was I a kid or was I a teenager? Both are kids, you know, still kids. So I've I've known you guys for quite some time. Yeah, so whatever age you were in 93, 94, that's when <laughs> I was we a met teenager you. back then. <laughs> oh, that's so great. So in South Africa, did you grow up Mormon? Uh, my parents joined the church when I was about five. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents probably got divorced a year or two after they joined the church. And although since they joined when I was five, you might say I grew up in the church, but Mm -hmm. not really. I didn't really uh, have the church experience until my mid-teens. I started to have that. Um, What happened was my when my parents got divorced, my father wasn't very good at paying child support. Mm. and My mother had to work full time. There was some financial hardship. And in South Africa, they have these government boarding schools. And they're more like military schools or reform schools. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, it's not the sort of elite boarding schools that you have in the United States. These are government-run and, you know, essentially free. And so mm. for the entire school year, um, my brothers and I, from when I was eight, I was about eight years and two weeks, and we got on a train to go to boarding school for the first time. Mm. My mom had uh, four boys and one girl, mm. and she was overwhelmed by it all. And, you know, these boarding schools uh, that were heavily subsidized meant that, you know, her three oldest boys had a roof over their head. They mm-hmm. had uh, structure, discipline, um, three meals a day, and they weren't either latchkey kids mm-hmm. when they came home from school. Uh, we weren't that, or we weren't running around the streets getting into trouble. So, uh, from the age of eight till pretty much when I finished high school, I was at one or another of these mm. uh, boarding schools. And basically, there were three types of kids who went to those boarding schools. They were, they were either the kids of farmers who just lived very remotely and there were no schools close by, or they were delinquent kids, or they were kids of single parents. Mm. And I may have fit two of those categories. Huh. Yeah. So that was Was that hard on you as a kid? Um I can't say I ever enjoyed boarding school. I know I, I never suffered depression as a child, but mm, I I know every time the new term started um you know when we got on the train to Hogwarts because <laughs> it was a steam engine back then. <laughs> was it magical though? <laughs> <laughs> Not magical. I was pretty blue the first two, you know, couple of days back at the beginning of the term, but then I adjusted. And, mm. you know, I, I never felt like um, I was abandoned because I, I just knew it was a necessity for my mother. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that South Africa had that sort of safety net mm-hmm. um, that you know, kept us boys from becoming street urchins. And yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and so on. Um, and we got a great education, um, great structure, 
but it did uh, it, it did create a mindset in me where I really appreciate my autonomy. Mm. <laughs> so I was fine given the structure of it, but uh, by the time I finished school and so on, I had this strong yearning for autonomy. And so my whole career it turned out to be managing it so that I'd never have to work for a boss. <laughs> that's and, not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that's something that boarding school gave me, this yeah. desire to be my own boss. Oh, I love that. That's that's actually really, that's interesting. So you mentioned, though, that you didn't really, with the Mormon religion, it didn't really, there was no feel of being Mormon until you were in your teen years. What happened? Right, so... um when I got to high school, uh, it was in another boarding school in another town. Um, there were probably 500 kids in that school. A hundred of us were boarders and 400 were day boys. And, and day boys are just regular? Regular, okay. yeah. Um, and I was the only Mormon in the entire school. Huh. But the Mormon chapel was about a mile down the road from what we called the hostel, mm. um, where all the boarders stayed. And so every Sunday morning, uh, I would walk uh, to church. Now, my two older brothers were at a different boarding school in the same town, so we'd often meet up and walk mm. to church together. And that was the first time that we really had regular attendance. It was only for the Sunday school and priesthood. We didn't go back for sacrament in the evening. But it was, you know, a way to get out of school, mm -hmm. the, the boarding house um, legitimately. You know, the earlier years, um, there was a part of my growing up in boarding school that, you know, it was in some ways good for me, but I don't have, you know, great fond memories of it. But during our vacations, we would all, always go to my grandmother's house because, um, again, my mother needed help. And mm. so we'd often get put on a train or my mother would drive us. Um, we lived about 300 miles away. Anyway, my, my grandmother had these cottages on the ocean. Mm. Um, you'd walk off the lawn onto the sand and so on. And so we would go there most um, vacations, and there was no church anywhere nearby. So both when I was at boarding school, there was no LDS church. There was um, in elementary school, etc. There were other traditional congregations, Dutch Reformed Church or mm -hmm. Church of England, and and so we'd go to we'd be required to go to those. Um, but during the vacations, we were at my grandmother's house, unsupervised on the beach, twenty four seven. Sounds awesome. That was awesome. My my grandmother was a lifesaver yeah. to us kids. Um, we we just had so much autonomy, you know. And so we went from one extreme of boarding school where it was very rigid and structured, and then to my grand's mm. house where she didn't supervise us, you know, we'd have breakfast and then we'd be gone for the rest of the day and mm. we'd come back for dinner and that was about it. Yeah. Um, so that was quite idyllic. No kidding. But yeah, so it wasn't until I got to high school, boarding school, 
that we had a church nearby. And so I'd go most times, but I, I, I identified as Mormon. And if there was anything I knew about being a Mormon back then, it was that we didn't drink tea or coffee, didn't smoke, didn't drink. Um, and, and, you know, I never, and so I, I lived the word of wisdom perfectly mm. as a teenager in high school, um, even though I wouldn't say I had a testimony. I just, well, I'm Mormon and we don't drink yeah. these things or we don't smoke. And so um, it wasn't hard for me to live the word of wisdom. Um, and and so during high school, as I say, I didn't really have a testimony. Um but I identified with the Mormons, you know, they were my tribe and I looked up to the adults in the church uh, where we attended. And so, yeah, they were my community and, and so on. And it was only after high school that I would say I developed a testimony. Mm. And what happened then for you to develop a testimony then? Well, I'll tell a little bit of a transition story. So, mm. When I was in my last year of high school, and I started school young, and so I was always a little challenged through most of school because developmentally I was behind all my mm. peers. I was always the youngest in class. And uh, I graduated as a 16-year-old. Mm, um, wow. And it wasn't because I was smart. It was just that I was plonked in school early, probably because my mother, you know, Thought please, to, please go. I need yeah, help. <laughs> well, I, I've already got another little boy at home, and so um, I went to school too early. Um, I I could have benefited from going a year later, but anyway, it does mean I I graduated early. And during my last year in high school, in the South African mission, they had uh, decided on this thing where they would call seniors in high school to serve two-week missions oh, and you'd go and be a companion mm -hmm. uh, to a missionary in the field yeah. and and the idea was you know this will inspire these young men so that when they are 19 they'll go on a mission anyway um i think it did the exact opposite <laughs> two weeks of tracting <laughs> knocking on doors having doors closed in your face uh -huh. I came back thinking, no way am I ever going to go on a mission. That is tough. Um, but also, um, during my senior year in high school as a 16-year-old, I I had a non-Mormon girlfriend, and I sort of broke the law of chastity mm -hmm. for the first and last time in my life. And that was just before I went on this two-week mission. Then on the two-week mission... You know, I came back feeling a little guilty. Um, back then, they didn't seem to ask these very explicit questions oh. in the interviews and so on. Anyway, um, after high school, I, I did connect with the, the sort of ward family there. And mm -hmm. um, I went straight into my first year of university in the same town. And uh, during And during that year... I started to become active for the first, fully active for the first time in my life where I would go to both morning meetings and then sacrament in the mm. evening as it was back then. And I would get together with the young adults group during the week. And so I, I 
sort of became converted and and it was very much an intellectual conversion but there were there were some aspects of the church at that time so this was my when i was 17 where i was really inspired by some of the teachings of the church um so it was both, you know, the teachings of Christ, teaching of Joseph Smith, um, you know, church saying glory of God is intelligence and the stressing of education. That's mm-hmm. something uh, that I got from church and and it really, you know, served me well yeah. in my life. Um, you know, the church says, you know, or Joseph Smith said happiness is the object and, you know, design of our existence mm. and and uh you know men are that they might have joy and and those resonated with me but there were also you know joseph smith um i remember that year there was actually quite a bit about joseph smith i don't know if it was a year of study on joseph smith or not but i do remember some of the things that you know he said the person who's filled with the love of god isn't content to just bless his family alone, but will range through the the world, yeah. uh, seeking to bless the whole human race, and and it was a very expansive religion. And you know, the Messiah sermon where he said, you know, never turn away uh, when a a beggar, you know, gives you his cup, and and don't you dare say, well, he probably brought that misery upon himself, so yeah. I'm not going to help him. And it said, no, you know, you help him, uh, you're not to judge, and if you do judge him and turn him away, uh, you're not going to get into heaven. I mean, mm-hmm. that was what Messiah preached, and and that, all of that kind of stuff really resonated with me mm-hmm. and, and inspired me. And so I had an intellectual reason to say, I fit here, I, I, I feel good about it. But also during that first year of university is when I started to say, you know, I haven't really, really repented of what I did yeah. in my last year of high school. And so I, no bishop or branch president had sort of quizzed me on, on that aspect. But I, I felt, yeah, I, I should repent. And I prayed about it and prayed long and hard. And, and there came a time when I felt the weight lifted off my shoulders mm-hmm. and and I, I took that as a spiritual experience yeah. that I, I got some peace from that prayer um, and that my sins were forgiven me. And that was the first and the last time that I can truly say I felt the Spirit. Mm. I called it the Spirit, right? Right. Uh, whatever it was, I, I felt something. And, you know, I read the Book of Mormon Promise and, the, the you know, Got lots of lessons about the burning in the bosom when you pray and get a witness from God. I never felt any of that. But the peace that I got when I felt, yeah, I've been forgiven, um, I took that as a, not only that I was forgiven, but I took it, that's a message that the church is true. Yeah, and And so even though I never, ever had another truly spiritual witness when when i would ask myself is it true um i would go back to that experience Mm -hmm. because there's also a verse in the doctrine and covenants where 
Oliver Cowdery is expressing concerns, and 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 Joseph Smith, you know, tells him, of course, supposedly God is talking through Joseph Smith, but basically, you know, don't you remember that night when you cried unto me in your prayers? Did I not speak peace to your mind? You know, what greater witness can you have than that? And and so I would always tell myself that when I had yeah. doubts that. No, I had that witness once. I, d- I don't have to have the witness again. Um, but, but it always was a cause of concern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at that point, after I had you know, gained the sense of peace, that's when I said, I've got to go on a mission. Um, so you did go. And so, yeah, so after my first year at university, I... I ended my studies temporarily, mm-hmm. but in South Africa, the the situation is, um, you have to serve in the military first. Oh. Everyone serves. Every man yeah. uh, gets called up, and you can't defer your mission. Um, you can't defer the army for your mission. Huh. You can defer it for a university education, but not for a mission. Oh, interesting. So. I said, okay, I'm going to have to go do my military service first. And then when I'm done with my military service, then I can um, go on a mission. And so. How long I, did you have to do the military service? Well, the military was for one year. Okay. Um, and. And then you have a two year mission. You want to go on top of that. Right. Wow. But it, it actually ends up being four years wow. in total because. So I told my parents, and I know my mother was disappointed because, you know, I was the, uh, I was the first in the family that had, you know, was had finished a year of college, oh. <laughs> and she, she was worried that I wouldn't go back. Um, it, not that she opposed me serving a mission, but she valued me getting an education. I don't think my father uh, cared either way. Um, the problem for me was my parents didn't have the means to support me on a mission, so I knew I'd have to be self-supporting. Anyway, I, I went into the army, you know, got on a train a couple of weeks after my 18th birthday, uh, took a train 400 miles into the interior, did my basic training, which was basically infantry training, mm-hmm. Um and and then after my basic training, I thought, you know, I may not have been you know, top of my class in high school, but I'm a lot smarter than a lot of these people here. <laughs> and I don't want to go to war as a foot soldier and have some of these yo-yos giving me orders. And so I applied for officer candidate school and I got accepted yeah. and I went through the officer training and became a platoon commander. So that's, you're over between 35 and 40 men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when my year was up, um, the army said to me, and it was a general call to the officers who were about to go home and back to civilian life. Now, what would happen is after your initial year of service, then you'd go back to, into the army every year for th- two or three weeks mm-hmm. for 10 years, and mm. then your service was complete. And the army said to me and, and others, look, if you join for a full second year, 
you'll get this nice big bonus and uh, you won't have to do the camps for the next 10 oh, years. Wow. And so I thought, you know, after I serve a mission, I'm going to want to get married. I'm not going to want to have my vacation time being at a right. military base and so on. And so I thought, this is perfect. I'll have the money to pay for my mission uh, and I won't have any camps uh and so off I went. I signed up for a second year, mm. and after that year, I uh, I I went on mission. I, I I probably had a couple of months between when I finished mm -hmm. the army and when I uh, went on mission, and I didn't have a good grounding in the church at that time. Um, I. I was somewhat ignorant. Um, I'd never done seminary or institute. We didn't mm -hmm. have that in South Africa. And so I spent those two years, you know, swatting up on all the, um, what would you call it? All, all the approved church history. Oh, so yeah. I read an approved history of the church book. And, you know, I read things like Jesus the Christ mm -hmm. and the Articles of Faith and, and so on. And and so when I went on mission, I was as prepared or, or more prepared than any of the American missionaries, even with all their seminary and institute, because uh, I'd you know, really yeah. focused in those couple of months. Where did you serve? So I served in South Africa. Oh, you did? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I... I worked hard. I was pretty much a stickler for the rules. I I was used to being in the military, and mm -hmm. so discipline wasn't a hard thing for me to learn. I, I didn't have to learn that. I was probably a pain for some of my companions because <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit of a stickler. Um, I'm sure the mission president loved you. The mission president did love me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Particularly the first mission president, about halfway through, I got a new mission president who didn't love me as much. But the first mission president, uh, yeah, um. he thought I was great. And and part of it was because, you know, within six weeks of coming on mission, I'd passed off all my missionary discussions. Now, he interviewed me. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, I gave a full confession to him. And what was interesting about it, <laughs> he knew my mother, uh, uh, my grandmother. Yeah. My grandmother, she joined the church after my parents, and she stayed active um, even when my parents weren't. Um, but she knew the mission president, and she asked about her grandson on mission. Oh, yeah. And uh, you know, he knew about anything I'd done that was bad, but there wasn't much, you know. After that episode, my last year of high school, I, you know, pretty much followed the straight and narrow, and and it it wasn't all that hard for me. Yeah. Um, but but he knew the full story, and I remember my grandmother telling me, he said, "You're a wonderful missionary, and you're as." What's that scripture? You're pure as the driven snow. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, okay, he knows everything about me and he thinks I'm, uh, you know, totally uh, pure and and worthy. And, and so that felt good. Yeah, yeah, it would for sure. So when did you meet Beverly? Well, I, 
I finished the mission and I came home. And of course, the mission, you're always told now it's your duty to get married and raise mm-hmm. a family. Um, now, I had two things that I had to do after my mission. One was to get married and have a family. The other one was to get an education. Mm. Now, in South Africa, um, you know, kids couldn't get part-time jobs and pay their Mm. way through university. It just wasn't done. And I knew that if I got married, uh, there's no ways I would finish my undergraduate. Um, and, And so I sort of said to myself, I have these two contradictory requirements. I will do both, but since I can't do both of them simultaneously, I'm going to get my education first, mm-hmm. and then I'll get married. And so I I went to university. There were a couple of Mormons in the university, but my friends, uh, and it, it was friends that I'd been in the army with, et cetera, and they were now a couple of years ahead of me mm. at university because I was on a mission. But I reconnected with them, and whenever we would have group gatherings, outings, dates, etc. I'd come with a different girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they were in some ways impressed. You know, they thought I was quite the Casanova every time <laughs> it was a different girl. But it was just me fearing commitment. I, yeah. I basically had a rule. I would take a girl out once and that was it. I, I just couldn't afford to get, you know, these emotional yeah. entanglements. I was really committed to getting my education. And, and so I got my degree. And uh, then within a year of that, uh, during the, the year after I graduated with my bachelor's in economics, Beverly and her family, she lived in the interior about 300 miles away. Mm. I lived in a city called Durban, which was on the ocean. And it was a, it was a holiday town as well as big business center and so Beverly and her family would come down to Durban for vacations and uh, she and her family came to church and I met her Mm. and uh, we seemed to get on quite well and we corresponded a little and then later there was a young adult camp that was sort of in the interior and I met her there again and we chatted, but she was very shy. Mm-hmm. And I, after that, I thought, mm, I'm not sure if, if she's interested in me. And we just left it. And um, and I don't know, how many letters did we write? Three or so over the course of a year or so? Anyway, um, then I was thinking, you know, my next step is BYU, and I must come and check out BYU for graduate school. And I was 25 at the time. Um, And, you know, Brigham Young had the saying that any man who reaches the age of 26 and is unmarried is a menace to society. (laughs) I did not know that. Oh, did you not know that? (laughs) I did not know that. Anyway, I I was closely approaching Mm -hmm. the menace stage. And um, Beverly and her sister came down to Durban uh, for one of the vacations. And and uh, we s- saw each other at church. And then Beverly's sister said to Beverly, let's go visit Nigel. And um, so I, I'm not sure how they got my address. I was living in a tiny apartment downtown. And... Uh, 
they came and knocked on my door. And as I opened the door and I saw them, something in my head clicked and said, Beverly's the girl I'm going to marry. Mm. It was just like that. I I just knew she was the girl. And so <laughs> we had a few dates uh, over the course of the next few days, and I proposed to her. Wow. <laughs> I, it was insane. I would never recommend it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we were married in 1981, and uh, we're still married. And, you know, my mother was aghast because, you know, she didn't know I was dating anyone. And all of a sudden, I told her that I'm, I've proposed and yeah. I'm engaged and uh, and so on. But... I, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know why. Um, I, at the time, sort of said to myself, this is the spirit prompting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so anyway, I proposed and Beverly said, I'll have to think about it, which was a sensible thing. <laughs> <laughs> Under the circumstances, I mean, I wouldn't have been happy had any of my kids done that. <laughs> But uh, anyway, a few days later, she gave me a call. She said, yeah. With some pressure from her father, who, who really liked me. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, and so she accepted my proposal. I went up to the city that she lived in, which is called Bloemfontein, which is translated flower town, um, or flower fountain, I should say. And... Uh, we spent about a week together, and then I had my fare already booked for, to come to the States for six uh-huh. weeks and visit BYU. And, and so even though I, I now realized, well, BYU will have to wait a while, I still came and checked out BYU and visited some old missionary companions and and then went back. And three weeks after I got back, we got married. Mm. Yeah. Then it all worked out great. So then eventually you did decide to come back to Utah. Yes. So Beverly's um, Beverly's attachment to her family uh, was strong. Mm-hmm. And so she was reluctant to come to the United States for, for me to go to graduate school. She was a little uncomfortable about that. I, I was eager. Um, I I didn't see myself being able to, you know, go to graduate school in South Africa and raise a family, but, you know, I knew about BYU housing and I thought we could afford it. And we had bought a piece of land to build on. In South uh, Africa? In South Africa. And it wasn't in our ward boundaries. It was in the next ward over. And... um yeah, so before we came to the States, uh, at the ripe old age of 28, I was called as bishop oh, wow. in the next ward, even though we weren't living it at the time, but we had property there, mm-hmm. and they needed it. And and part of it was just, you know, I was very stalwart. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I carried out my duties. After my mission, I probably spent three years as the ward clerk for the bishop in Durban, 
And then he became the stake president, mm. and then I served on his high council, and then he called me as a bishop, and I was totally unprepared. But some almost a year before I was called as bishop, my father left the church, and he gave me some literature on Joseph Smith and his 30-plus oh. wives, and I read it, and it shook me. Mm. and. And when the stake president called me and said, we want you to serve as a bishop, I said, I don't think I can. I've mm -hmm. read the stuff on Joseph Smith, and and it's really sh shaken my testimony. And, uh, you know, he he convinced me, you know, this anti-Mormon literature and mm -hmm. and so on. And he said, you know, we sent, we've sent your name to Salt Lake City. It's been approved by the First Presidency. Uh, we have faith in you. And this is just a bump in the road. Uh, you've been tried. And anyway, he convinced me to accept it. And But anyway, at, while serving as a bishop outside of that ward's boundaries and thinking about building, we had unrest in South Africa because mm. of the policy of apartheid. Um, well, that's how we would say it. Um, apartheid is how Americans mm -hmm. pronounce it. But it, the word basically means separateness, uh, s separateness of the races. And there was unrest and um, part of, partly because of that unrest and some infiltration of terrorists on the border, and that's why we had conscription and all young men mm. had to serve in the military uh, because of that terrorist threat. Um, but, you know, there, up until that time, there hadn't been much trouble uh, in the interior of the country and in the cities, etc. But my office block was like a hundred yards from our apartment complex in right downtown mm -hmm. um, in Durban, and you know I would come down the elevator of the apartment, walk a hundred yards, go into another building, go up to my mm -hmm. office. Anyway. One morning, a bomb went off in oh, wow. my office building, and there was a military recruitment office on the ground floor, street level, um, of my office building. And the African National Congress went and planted a bomb there that went off at like five o'clock in the morning. Mm. So number one, it obviously wasn't designed to inflict much damage to human beings, mm -hmm. but it was designed to destroy that military recruitment office. Anyway, it was at that point where Beverly said, you know, going to study at BYU might not be a bad idea. Yeah. And so that got her over the hump of coming to BYU. Mm -hmm. um, and so we we sold the land that we had bought. It had appreciated nicely. And that was going to be enough to pay for my two years of, of graduate school. Mm. But um, six months, uh, we couldn't take it all out of the country at the time. And six months after we got here, or maybe it was even less, the RAND, which is their currency, devalued. Mm. They, they de And it wasn't a free market movement. The government said the RAND is now worth this. Anyway, wow. so when we came to the United States, the RAND was almost equal, one RAND to one dollar. Within six months, it was 50 US cents for one RAND. Wow. So our savings for college 
uh, was cut in half, basically. Uh, so that created a little bit of difficulty. <laughs> I um, imagine. Beverly would get up at four o'clock in the morning and go and clears, clean Sears. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, and, and I fortunately – my school fees were covered by a scholarship at BYU and I had a teaching assistant job where mm. I got paid. Um, and for back then, you know, it was $10 an hour, which was pretty good uh, mm -hmm. in the mid eighties. Um, and so we managed to get through with a, a small, very small $1,500 loan and we were able to. And do you uh, have any children at this point? Yeah. So, our, our youngest son, uh, I'm sorry, our oldest son, Michael John, was two years old mm. um, when we came here. But our date for flying, because he would have to pay 50% for a fare once he turned two, mm. we got on the plane the day before his second birthday <laughs> so that Smart. he wouldn't have to pay. Yeah. Uh, he could just sit in our laps and and Beverly was expecting at the time. Oh, wow. So, you know, six months after we got here, our second son was born, mm. our anchor baby. Mm. <laughs> As immigrants, we, you know, we came in on a student visa, but the hope was that we'd figure out a way to yeah. get immigrant status, uh, which we eventually did. And then Stephen, our youngest, was born um, – Was it about three years after we got here? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That would be challenging to do, have all that stress and then have your babies. <laughs> Beverly worked hard so that I could concentrate on school. Yeah. And for the listeners, Beverly's in the room with us. So that's, you know, if you haven't noticed, there's a little of like, wait, kind of turning to you a little. Um, so from that point... You've got, you've got a young family. You're starting here in Utah, getting your finishing your education. From that point to where you're at today, what transpired for you to you know feel like? Because I know with your relationship now, you know you you've left, you've stepped out, and Phil to share your story, and your wife is still choosing in, which can be a challenging situation for for some couples and for you too. It seems like you guys have managed to navigate this quite beautifully. So what has transpired between there? I mean, you laugh a little yeah. bit when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I'm sure it's had its challenges. It wasn't stress-free. Um, so, you know, I, I loved my youth in the church. Yeah. I think it was good for me. Given my personality, my background, it worked for me. Uh, I couldn't imagine not raising my kids in the church. Um, I, I, in some ways... You know, Beverly grew up in a family that was intact. Uh, mine wasn't. Mm -hmm. I'd never really had a father figure. I didn't grow, grow up with a father. I had schoolmasters, and, mm -hmm. and that was about it. Um, and so how to be a parent was not something I knew that much about. Um, and And so for me, the church... I thought, well, this will help me raise my kids. Yeah. Um, and the church was good for me, so I assumed the same thing for my children. As it turns out, it wasn't good for two of them. Mm. Uh, one, because he's gay. Um, and so that 
has caused some serious relig- religious trauma. And, you know, I can't say we were guilt. We were innocent in all this because, you know, we had TBM mindsets and being gay was not right. And so uh, when he came out to us, um, we didn't know what to do and we didn't do it right. Uh, you know, we didn't hug him and say, this doesn't change a thing, etc. cetera. Um, you know, part of it is because you, you're taught in the church that you have this eternal family and if you mm-hmm. all stick with it, you'll be in the eternities together. Mm-hmm. And the moment something like that happens, you say, well, he can't be true to himself and continue in the church. And mm-hmm. so what are the implications? So, you know, how, you old, ha- how old was he when he came out? Well, when he came out, he was probably 18. Um, he was, I think in his first year at BYU. Mm-hmm. Um, now we had another son, Craig, um, and Craig, I don't think he ever believed the church was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to follow his own path. And, you know, the church, and, and this is where the church um, didn't work for me and my family. And and I can't blame it all on the church. It's me as well. Um, but, you know, the, you have these scriptures that say the Lord doesn't look on sin with the least degree of allowance. And we're told... Uh, you know, I'm not sure I was raised with this hate the sin and love the sinner, that that phrase. But, you know, we were taught that you shouldn't condone sin. And so when Craig started to go off the tracks, it was hard for me to be a real father to him and talk to him about what he was going through because... I was worried that I'd be condoning sin. Mm. And and so I feel bad that um, I I couldn't really connect with him. And, and again, part church, part just who I was. And he got into drugs and and I yeah and and the church didn't prepare me for that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the church was putting me through the same lessons every four years, regurgitating the same stuff. I wasn't learning anything new. And I, and I think back, wouldn't it have been great if through church they had a year when you focused on raising toddlers and then another few years later you learned about preteens and then learned about teenagers and, and how to, you know, bond with them using, you know, what science tells us about parenting mm-hmm. rather than, well, this scripture says this and this scripture says that. Some of it's good and some of it's toxic. Um, and so th- there was part of that. But I, I had never forgotten that I'd read about polygamy. And then within a couple of years after our oldest son came back from his mission, he served in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, his best friend, and they'd been best friends for years before and after mission. He read about the, uh, uh, book of Abraham Mm. and, um, 
my son Michael John came to me and said, yeah, he's left the church um, because he, 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 he's learned that the book of Abraham, those scrolls have been found and translated and they're a funerary script and they have nothing to do with Abraham. The word's not mentioned there. The facsimiles in the book of Abraham don't, you know, Joseph Smith gave an interpretation of them, but modern Egyptologists, you know, have the correct interpretation and, you know, it was all made up and, you know, I didn't want to hurt Michael John's faith and because um, I knew that would not be good for our marriage if, if Beverly saw me undermining the faith of our kids. And and so I said, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to help him? And he said, yeah, I'm going to try to help him think through it. But I think that was the beginning of Michael John's journey out of the church. And then I think sometime after that, he showed me this video of different people bearing their testimonies, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh -huh. Seventh-day Adventists and and uh, fundamentalist Mormons and the reorganized church and all of them bearing testimonies using many of the same words and phrases mm. and talking about the same kind of feelings that Mormons will will bear testimony of in sacrament. And, uh, and something else that I had, in the back of my mind, and I'd had it since 9-11, was I said, I said to myself, so that was 2001, mm -hmm. I said to myself, you know, Joseph Smith said that a religion that doesn't have the ability to get people to sacrifice everything for the religion, doesn't have the ability to promote the promote the necessary faith to get back to heaven. And I said to myself, those 9-11 attackers gave everything. You know, their religion gave them <laughs> that kind of faith. Um, and so all of these little threads started to lead me to question. And so back in the early, mid, you know, 2000 to 2010, I started to bear my testimony differently. Um, I no longer said, I know the church is true. I believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. I stopped saying that. And I would, I would bear testimony to things that I thought of as more eternal truths. And so, you know, there's the scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a, a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this earth upon which all blessings are predicated. And when you get any blessing from God, it is by obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. And I, I would look around and I'd say, you know, I've been obeying these laws and it's given me a really good, stable marriage. You know, those are genuine laws that we're blessed mm -hmm. for following. Um, my sister, and I learned this later on, but I knew we had lots of alcoholics in our family mm -hmm. um, on my mother's side. Mm -hmm. My mother's father, several of her brothers, my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, um, alcohol was a problem. And so I look back at Mormonism and say, that may have saved me. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had a brother who went off the rails and... Um, he abused things like alcohol and, you know, and, and anyway, it, 
I look at the word of wisdom and I say, yeah, that may have saved me from a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and so there, there were laws in the church that I said, hey, I've been blessed from following those laws, and I would bear testimony to that. But I stopped mm. bearing testimony of Joseph Smith and others. Um, and then Craig died. Um, How old was he when he passed? He was 20, 23. Um, and it was just a freak accident. Um, and I, I, I wanted to believe. <laughs> um, and, you know, a few years after that, we decided we needed to move a mm. uh, new environment. And we moved over to Saratoga Springs uh, at that point. Uh, and I was, you know, active and always accepted callings. I never turned down callings. Um, but out at Saratoga Springs, I started to follow three lines of study that started to deconstruct things. And for me, it wasn't deconstructing Mormonism. It was more deconstructing religion. Mm -hmm. And Mormonism was a part of that deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so... My brother and I, he lived in Saratoga Springs at the time, and I think the course of study was the Old Testament, and we would sometimes chat and we'd talk about the atrocities. You know, Moses telling um, his, his soldiers, that, and I think it was the Midianites, you know, go and slay them all. Pregnant woman, kill her. Babies, kill them. Um, little boys, kill them. Men kill them, um, but keep the virgins. Mm -hmm. you know, take those for yourself. And you know the Old Testament is full of those kind of stories that you never, <laughs> you pretty much gloss over mm -hmm. in Mormon Sunday school class, and you don't ask the hard questions. And 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 we looked at other things in the Old Testament, said mm, that can't be right. Um, and and that started me to doubt, you know, how could this God be so different from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And I knew what the church teach or taught, you know, mm -hmm. to bring, you know, it was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ and blah, 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 blah. But then you say, okay, so why did all those firstborn children in Egypt have to die? I mean, mm -hmm. they weren't Israelites. He wasn't trying to bring them to God. He was just punishing the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh wouldn't listen. You know, and I, I, I thought, no, this can't be. And, and it started to emerge in my head. You know, you had these warring tribes, right? And they had religion. And religion propped up the leader. The, the priests would, you know, be there to serve the leader. And so they invented a God that was like them. If they were psychopaths well god was a psychopath he killed all the firstborn mm -hmm. um he and you know maybe we felt a bit guilty after killing those pregnant women and those little babies but no we shouldn't feel guilty because after all god told us to do it you know so so who needs satan when god can tell you to commit these atrocities and so that that was one stream and then there i started to read up to understand the New Testament better and the history of the New Testament. And, and there was this guy, Erhart, um, 
who's written some books. He was an evangelical Christian, mm-hmm. became a Bible scholar, and then it fell apart for him. And and he's written stuff on the Bible and or the New Testament and how it came to be and when the different gospels were written and, and the different letters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'd always known, you know, from the church saying, you know, the Bible is the word of God insofar as it is translated mm-hmm. correctly. So I knew there were errors in the Bible. And so I always had that excuse when there were contradictions and so on. Um, but then as I, I, I learned from these um, New Testament scholars that, you know, Mark was the first of the Gospels written decades after Christ's death, and it had nothing about a virgin birth. It starts with John the Baptist, nothing before that. But then the Gospels that get written 20, 30 years later, none of them by the apostles, start to add, you know, the miracle, you know, virgin mm-hmm. birth and all that kind of stuff. And and then, you know, the, the Gospel scholars also examining Paul's letters, you know, read these letters and they analyze them and say, you know, these and I, I'm just going to throw out some numbers. These aren't the real numbers. These nine got these nine letters of Paul, they bear his print. The, the syntax, the, the structure of the sentence, the vocabulary, that's the same. These seven letters, they're totally different. This mm-hmm. one does this, this one uses these concepts and these phrases and these words. They weren't written by Paul. Mm-hmm. And you know, dozens of letters supposedly written by apostles were rejected when you know, Constantine said to the church fathers, now, you know, put together an authorized version of the Bible and the New Testament. Um, and so it was, you know, scholars know and have known for some time that a lot of what's in the Bible today were forgeries. You know, so, hey, I've got to convince these people that my idea is right. If I put my name on it, they're going to say, you know, who's John Doe? Uh, but Paul, the apostle, People are going to read it and take mm-hmm. it seriously. So you've got all these forgeries floating around. And then also, you know, gospel scholarship and the discovery of old texts. They can tell now, okay, the King James Version has this text here, but that was taken from a, a manuscript that, you know, dates back to 600 years after Christ. This one, 300 years after Christ, and this one, 350 years after Christ, those gospels. Don't have those verses at the end. That's mm-hmm. been added. And and I looked at Joseph Smith, and he and he did an inspired version of the Bible. And I said, why the heck did he not tell us that these gospels of Paul they're fakes, mm-hmm. they're forgeries? Why why did he <laughs> not go through and say, no, these verses don't belong here? They were added by evil scribes who wanted to do, sort of sn- sn- sneak their own ideas mm-hmm. into the gospels. And so that was the second thing. And then the third thing was reading Rough Stone Rolling. Oh, yeah. Written by a faithful Mormon, a patriarch in the church. And I read it and I say, all that stuff that I read in 1983 Mm -hmm. that I was told was anti-Mormon literature, all of that stuff Joseph Smith did, marrying a Mm 14-year-old. Uh, the, the undue influence and that scripture that so inspired me as a 17-year-old. Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be 
the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. You know, and you know, the path was virtue, uprightness, holiness, and obedience to all the commandments of God. And I loved that idea, and it spoke to me. But now I find out that that was the beginning of a letter to Nancy Rigdon. I don't know how old she was, late teens, where he was trying to persuade her to come into polygamy. And the rest of the letter was to tell her that if God commands it, it's good. It's mm -hmm. holy. So God has commanded me, and pol this polygamy thing is a commandment of God, and so it's holy. But the church always would take out the first sentence of that letter, which was beautiful. I mean, Joseph Smith had some beautiful uh, insights and ideas that inspired me as a youth, but mm -hmm. I didn't know all this other stuff. So those were the three things. Yeah. And, and so I looked at the inspired version of the Bible that Joseph Smith had done, and then I looked at the New Testament scholarship, and I said to myself, he didn't know what he was doing. He was making it all up. Uh, <laughs> And so that may have been the final nail in the coffin was the inspired version of the Bible. Even though I had heard about the book of Abraham and some of these other things, uh, anyway, that's what led to me, me to that point. Mm -hmm. But I was still active, but I was being eaten up inside. Oh, yeah. Because I couldn't speak my truth. I couldn't ask hard questions in priesthood or Sunday school because people would say, because the moment you ask a hard question, like if you were to say, what do you think about Joseph marrying a 14-year-old girl? You know, people would go and speak to the bishop and, mm -hmm. and they'd say, you know, he's causing trouble. And other people would say, you know, the moment you said that, the spirit left the room. So cognitive dissonance mm -hmm. gets taken and say, if I have cognitive dissonance, that means it's evil. Mm -hmm. um, whereas cognitive dissonance is when you have an untruth in your head and there's a truth that says, hey, these two don't fit. Um, anyway, I just felt I, I couldn't be myself. I was listening to the same lessons. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't participate in class because I'd say things that would upset people. and But then... I'd been released from the high priest group, a calling there, and uh, I had a few months off, and then a member of the bishopric came and knocked on my door and uh, wanted to call me to the Sunday school. And I basically said to myself, this is it. I mean, I've been wearing a mask for too long. Mm. And so for the first time in my life, I turned down a calling, and I told him why. I told him I no longer believed. Um, so, so a counselor in the bishopric was the first person to hear that I no longer believed. But once I told him, I, think, I said to myself, Heck, I better tell Beverly now. Yeah. She can't learn this via the grapevine. Um, I, I, but I'd always been afraid of telling her, right? Yeah. Because I, I was confident of my love for her and her love for me but i know that people get divorced when one person leaves the church and i knew how hurtful it would be mm -hmm. that that was probably the primary thing i knew it would hurt 
Beverly to the, the core mm. um, because we'd made covenants, right? Mm. Uh, for time and all eternity. And, you know, I, I was petrified to tell her, but I told a member of the bishoprics I had no option, and I told her, and I'll put this word on it, and she can tell you her story later, but she was devastated. Mm. Uh, she was, I interpreted it as angry at me, uh, but it was fear, right? Mm. Fear. What does this mean for the covenants we made in the temple? What does this mean for our marriage? Mm. Uh, and so it was devastating for Beverly. Um, I knew that, you know, or I was confident that we'd get through it, uh, that this wouldn't break our marriage. Um, and I do remember Beverly telling me a couple of months later that one of the members of our ward, <laughs> and I'm not sure how this member learned that I'd left the church, um, possibly through my mother-in-law who lives <laughs> lived with us. <laughs> um, but anyway, Kathy spoke to Beverly and, and basically said to her, look, Nigel's a good man. <laughs> You know, don't let this uh, get between you. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we rode out the storm and things are great. Well, that's good. You've touched on a one. I find it fascinating, the regurgitation of the scriptures and, and, and the way that your mind works, I think is beautiful. And, and the acknowledgement that you've had that it's been an intellectual conversion for you because in my experience, especially with human beings, some people just feel it and some people know it because there is more of a knowing in that right. intellectual connection. And you touched on something that I think is really powerful in that idea of God, right? That, that people have labeled that religion and society has put an identification on of this white male. And it, and I actually was just writing about this yesterday. It's really fascinating and somewhat naive and ignorant for humankind to put God as a white male for multiple reasons. One, we yeah. live in a vast, you know, just yesterday I was looking at this thing on, I don't remember where it was, but going through the universe in this discovery in 2003 of the Hubble telescope focusing on this dark area of the sky that they couldn't figure out why yeah. it was so dark. Have you seen this? I Focus, saw this Did you morning. see me? Yeah. I shared it on my Facebook a few oh. days ago. And, and after four months of it focusing on this dark space, it comes back with this picture of galaxies and galaxies. I think in that image alone, there was 10,000 galaxies in that image alone. And one of the galaxies was so large that it shouldn't technically exist based off of what science is saying, what should exist, you know, and, and an earthquake that, ex that happened just the other day, that's lower in our earth's mantle than has ever been that supposedly shouldn't ever happen. And, you know, we live in this vast world and this existence that our human brains cannot even comprehend. Right. And so the idea that we have that we get to label and identify what God is, especially when it comes to religion, is limiting our capacity and our ability to really connect to something that is so much greater than we can even put words to. You yeah. know, this book that I was sharing with you, I keep staring at it because Yawa is, it's Y-H-W-H, -H, yeah. um, is the unidentifiable, un unidentifiable, 
unidentified one or one that's unidentifiable. I'm not saying this correct. Um, because there is no label that we can really put on something that exists that's so much greater than us. And um, religion has, in my experience and in my studies as well, and it sounds like yours too, is really been a construct to have, like you said, put somebody up on a pedestal and, hey, let's go you know, now follow these things that a person, a man who in his limited, in his perspective and his perception of what he knows and has learned what God is would be different than what your connection to God is or what Beverly's is or what mine is. And I think that that is where the biggest irony that we have in our existence as a humankind with thinking that my connection to God's source, whatever you want to call it, does not mean that whatever revelation I'm getting is through my filters. So yours would be different through yours filters. And so would a prophet of some church that has been created through a religion. Mm -hmm. So to then justify that, well, this is inspiration from God is a narcissistic way of saying that I only have this connection with it. And then therefore you need to follow what I'm saying. And it does really do a disservice to the sovereignty that we get to have and experience as a human species. Yeah. You know, as Mormons, we used to make fun of these other religious creeds like God is a God without body parts or passions, right? And the truth is that probably if there is a God, that makes more sense than a white man with a beard Mm -hmm. um, with body parts and passions. Um, But, you know, as a youngster, you know, being able to relate to God yeah. Yeah, and in some ways the church is stepping away from this particular teaching, but you know, I remember it as a youth, you know, as God is, man once as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. And well, we see things as we are. Yeah. And so that's what to me what that scripture is is that is that we see things as we are. And in, when we grow in our intelligence and our understanding, then things that we see shift. But if you're in a construct to where this is what you're supposed to see, it's static. You can't expand. Right, right. It's difficult to expand. I shouldn't say can't because all things are possible and everything's a choice and yeah. what we're choosing in our lives. Yeah, there's there's so much out there that we are encouraged not to look at mm-hmm. as adults in the church. Um, and and the church wasn't always that way. Um, you know, there were leaders in the church in the first presidency that were very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, that You know, Hubie Brown sort of said, we shouldn't be trying to have people think uniformly in the church. We shouldn't use consequences or fear to get people to think the mm-hmm. same. And he said it's not so much whether or not a member has orthodox ideas or heterodox ideas. What matters is that they think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and now it's don't think. Yeah. You know, it's question your questions, doubt your doubts. Yeah, doubt your doubts. Uh, only re- read approved sources, which I did for <laughs> most of my life. Um, but and one of the other members of the first presence, he said. You know, if we have the truth, it can't be harmed. If we don't have the truth, it should be harmed, mm-hmm. you know. 
And so there was an open-mindedness. Joseph Smith was open-minded. He changed his mind on things. Joseph Smith was a seeker and and a seeker of truth and a magi. If you actually go back and look what you have, he actually, I just had a conversation with someone the other day that I didn't know this. He had access to a library that had books upon books upon books about anything that you could really want to get your hands on, which is really fascinating because at that time, that was not a common thing to be able to have access to. Yeah. And so, you know, who knows if he was digesting all this information and then from that place took that and then created what he created in a sense of wanting to create whatever it was for good. You know, what I'm doing with creating a podcast and doing books, you know, I feel like this is my purpose here on this earth. He was probably doing it from that same place. And then what it's changed into is probably a little bit different. Who knows? Did you know he had Egyptian mummies? Yeah. I found that out recently too. Yeah, he bought the Egyptian mummies, mummies along with the scrolls that he claimed with the Book of Abraham. And I like the term you used for him. He was a seeker. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't make right some of the things that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a seeker. He was, his mind was so curious, and it, and it was like a steel trap, and, and it would integrate these different things from different realms. And, I mean, he was so far ahead of his times mm-hmm. But he also <laughs> got stuck in the past when he wanted to create all the truth from the past, the Old Testament. And yeah. so the practices like polygamy needed to be re- resurrected. Um, oh, that and it served him at the time. Yeah, and... it served him at the, t- at the time. Um, you know, just in the last couple of years, I've come to see blasphemy as something different. You know, we used to think blasphemy is taking the Lord's name in vain, meaning I curse and, mm-hmm. you know, have the word God or Jesus in my sort of curse. But really, it's when you claim to speak for God, <laughs> you're putting, and you're putting words in God's mouth. Mm-hmm. It's not God speaking, but you're telling people it is. That's blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Making claims on behalf of God uh, is blasphemy. It's not when someone lets out a you know curse word um, that mentions deity in it um, and, and so for me the, there's so much to admire about Joseph Smith mm. uh, he's seeking etc but when he starts to put the stuff in the mouth of God when he uses it to manipulate women into marrying him polygamously um, you know, then that's blasphemy uh, in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if we could just learn the seeker part of Joseph Smith and perhaps emulate some of those characteristics, I think we'd be in a good place. And and clearly, you are. Um, oh, I'm always seeking. But, you know, <laughs> that's great. Well, and I, again, I'm just going to touch on this. I think that. You know, when you speak on the blasphemy, I would agree with you to a point. And I think the reason why I say to a point is because I think we all have access to God. And so we can all be, you know, have information come through us that it's connected to God. Um, I think when it when it becomes more blasphemous is when it's now I'm the only one that can, you don't have access this, to this, but I do. That I feel like is when, and who's to say that it's blasphemy? Who's the one that's pointing the fingers yeah. of saying what you can and cannot do when it comes to a connection that is so deeply personal? 
yeah. when it comes to God. And, and so if someone says to me, you know, God has told me to do this, I'm mm. going to step back. But if someone says to me, God has told me to tell you to do this, oh. then I draw a line, right? <laughs> yeah, filters, filters people. <laughs> oh, man. Man, you and I could sit and have a conversation for a very long period of time because I love how I love listening to your mind and the things that you've, rec- you know, you've communicated. You. Um, but I do, you know, and maybe we'll talk Beverly into being on this podcast one of these days, but we'll see if she wants to ever share her story. Because there is that deep, I mean, it's, we're talking about things that are very, very personal when it comes to God, religion, you know, like you talked about these covenants that have been, been made, it, this is where that and those we leave behind becomes very, very delicate. You know, and I, I touched on before we started, you know, my first conversations with my mom, with her asking, you know, do you believe in God? At when I first left and I told her, no, you know, not the God that you believe in. I don't. And, you know, it was brought her to tears and just the different levels that we've had of navigating through this, which is very different than if it was my husband and I was dealing through that. But it, it is a very um, painful experience that I can only imagine. And I would also imagine it stretched you too in ways that you never thought you could be stretched and probably strengthened in ways that you didn't think were possible. Is that an accurate statement? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I- <laughs> Beverly may have forgotten this conversation, and and we had a repeat of the conversation recently. We took a trip down to Cedar City and uh, Cedar Breaks and so on uh, this last weekend. Um, But Beverly asked me to reinterpret. So when I saw her and her sister on my doorstep, Mm -hmm. what was it that told me, this is the girl you're going to marry? And... And I didn't put it this way, quite this way, this last time. But the previous time when Beverly asked me that, I said, obviously, I looked at you and I got giddy, right? It was the love gene in me telling me that you're the one. Um, and I, I didn't mention that in this last conversation we had, but (laughs) I know that the first time we had the conversation, in some ways there was a reassurance in that, Mm -hmm. um, that I didn't marry her just because the Holy Ghost (laughs) told me to. Uh, There was a a personal connection there uh, that was part of it. And and so that's how I reinterpret things. so do you yeah. not have a connection with God anymore? Uh, I would say no. Um, I, I think each of us has intuition, and I don't choose to call that God or mm-hmm. a connection to God. I I do th- have things that offend my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Mormons, we'd call it the light of Christ, Um and so, you know, there's good there, but I I no longer call it God. Mm-hmm. No. I know when I first left, it was source is what I would call it. I couldn't pick up a book that mentioned God or Jesus. It was like there was a lot of healing that I had to do because I feel like when we do choose to step out of religion, that God dies 
and it's important to let it die in my experience and um with the people that I work with when we don't allow that to fully die um nothing else can be rebirthed nothing else new can come in because we still right. are holding on to something with a confused mix of I don't even know what this is anymore and so in my experience it is important to die to let it die and for me when I went through that period it was painful has it been hard for you It, the hardest thing for me was having to put my cards on the table with Beverly. Yeah. That was the hardest. Um, you know, strangely enough, it hasn't caused me any existential crisis. Um, I don't say, well, what's my purpose now? Mm -hmm. um, I don't say what happens after death. You know, I what I tell myself is at night, I'm tired. I love going to sleep. Mm -hmm. And if I never wake up, uh, there's no pain for me. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to fear. Mm -hmm. uh, peace is, you know, sleep is restful. I, I've rarely had nightmares in my life. I've had some weird dreams. But for the most part, sleep is peaceful. Mm -hmm. And if there's nothing afterwards, there's nothing. If there is something, I'm going to be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And it's not going to be the God of the Old Testament. Uh, and it's probably going to look very, very different from anything that we can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll be pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. I, I've i never felt fearful that, oh, I'm going to go to hell. You know, I've burnt my bridges. Um or anything like that. Um, no, it 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 hasn't been a, a great loss. Um, I I feel you know you lose some friends. Yeah, uh, they're not comfortable around you. You you're sometimes not comfortable around them. I don't want to put it all on them. You know, when mm -hmm. they're always bearing their testimonies and. And all they can talk about is church, and that doesn't apply to all members. But you know, you use you lose some of that community, mm -hmm. and that is probably what I've lost is yeah. that sense of community. I, I did go to the community of Christ a few times. Um, it used to be the reorganized church, and mm -hmm. they, you know, are LGBTQ affirming, and you know, they have female apostles mm -hmm. and. And and because they share some of the common Mormon roots, I, I I did sort of feel at home there. But I I just because of where my beliefs are, I I couldn't fully connect. Although mm. I really liked the people and and I liked their openness and and so on. I also went for a few months to um, can't remember the name of the group. Uh, oasis uh, which is a non-religious thing yeah. and and so on and and it was over in provo and the schlep from mm. um from saratoga springs was a little far and then we went traveling for two years and mm, fun. we you know i i just lost contact and um, so that's the one thing i i need to remedy is to establish a sense of community again mm. that's that is what I've lost. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That does get challenging for most people who leave is 
trying to figure out where we fit in now. And the ability to actually be 100% ourselves and not feel like we have to dim down or, I mean, there's an interesting aspect of still trying to fit in. Um, Yeah. Yeah, because I don't want to say anything that's going to cause offense or is going to hurt someone else's testimony. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was... Beverly and I were with this couple, and she said to me, Nigel, you know, we're adults here. You know, you've left the church. Tell me why. Good for her. Not a lot of people will do that. But I couldn't bring myself to fully honor her question because, uh, number one, I wasn't sure of how strong her husband was in the church. And I thought, okay, maybe she's asking it because she knows she can take it, but will the husband be able to take it? Mm-hmm. And so rather than tell her the whole story, I told her a very clipped version of it that would be easy to dismiss. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I I just basically told the one piece about um, the – New Testament and what I've learned about that and, you know, the the inspired version of the Bible doesn't Mm -hmm. reflect any of what we truly know now about what should or shouldn't be in that set of scriptures. And, and, you know, basically I left it at that. I didn't bring up the book of Abraham and how Mm -hmm. those texts are just an Egyptian funerary script. (laughs) I didn't bring up the sort of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith marrying teenagers and marrying married women. I didn't bring up any of that. So it was a short answer. And and sometimes I wonder, gee, maybe I should have, but I just couldn't bring myself to tell the full story. Well, I feel like we do the best we can, especially when it's shortly, you know, you're going, it takes time to really get more and more comfortable with what what we want to share. And a lot of that is very personal, right? And so it's the more we share it, sometimes it's it's just not the right time. Yeah. And I think when you were speaking a little bit earlier with, you know, that you like to sleep and it's like, if you never wake up, that's fine. And maybe there's something, I think there's some beauty in that of not knowing and not having any expectations and being yeah. curious because it allows for, there's no attachment there. Right. And in my experience, attachment is actually what causes our disappointment and, <laughs> and our, our suffering to things. Yeah, actually, when I started to leave the church, I started to read a little of Buddhist philosophy oh, yeah. and um, the Eastern philosophies mm-hmm. around attachment and so on. And yeah. there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah, and beautiful yeah. practices. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'm sure with your son and being gay, that's been challenging. I can only imagine. That that was hard. Um, you know, he came out as gay after our middle son died. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it, we were still, you know, trying to be true blue Mormon at the time. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, Beverly did everything for his marriage, right? She, mm. you know, catered the wedding reception and so on. So, you know, we got there. Mm-hmm. I wish we had been there on the day he came out to us rather than 
um, you know, taking six months to fully accept who he was. Mm. Uh, and I just throw six months out there. I don't know if it was three months or nine months. But anyway, uh, you know, sadly, we weren't there from the start. But I actually had to tell Stephen um, to pull up out from the church because even mm. after being gay and experiencing all the pain and the shame around that, he continued to go to church. Mm. Um, and then there was the Boyd K. Packer talk and conference in 2010 mm. where he challenged the idea that anyone would be born gay and his infamous statement that they deleted from the printed version of it was, you know, what heavenly father would do that to anyone? You know, why would heavenly father do that to anyone? Which is and, a great question. He didn't do it to anyone. That's exactly. the kicker. <laughs> that, and that devastated Stephen. Yeah. It's it sent him into a tailspin. By now, I in my head, even though I hadn't come out of my closet, um, in my head, I didn't believe the church was true. And so he came over us to us probably the next Sunday. Uh, for Sunday lunch, and I took him into the room with Michael John. Michael John had already left the church, um, but I took both of them in and basically, you know, said to Stephen, "Look, I don't know what's true, um, but I, I don't think the church is a good place for you. Um, you're not safe in the church." And, mm. and basically, at that point. I think he realized it, and he left as well. And then, of course, the November 15th policy about not blessing and baptizing the children mm -hmm. of gay parents, uh, that that was devastating to Beverly and me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the thing that caused me the most concern was when it first came out, didn't come through official channels. Mm -hmm. And so many men, uh, so many members of the church, their immediate response was, no, that's enemies of the church. You know, f they didn't have the term fake news back then, but that's what they essentially were calling it. No, it's false. It's stories made up by enemies of the church. And then when the church makes it official and says, no, that's true, they did a 180. Mm. So the light of Christ, or whatever you want to call it, says to them when they hear it, no, that can't be true. That's so contradictory to Christ's teaching, suffer the little children to come unto me. Or, you know, better that a man have a millstone around his neck and thrown in the sea than to offend one of these little ones. I mean, that's where the Mormons went to. But the moment the church said, no, we're doing it, and it's for the sake of the children, <laughs> they did a 180. And and. I, I had never allowed myself ever, and I used to get offended when people used the word cult, mm -hmm. but that was cult-like behavior. Mm -hmm. When it offends your soul, but when the leader suddenly comes and says, no, God's, God told us to do that, mm -hmm. you will just change like that. Um, number one, that's blasphemy. God told us to do that uh, to the kids. Um, but but to just s subvert your own conscience, um, that is problematic. Um, and, and so I, I love what the church did for me as a youth. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 in, 
in fact, my my liberal politics is not in spite of being in a conservative church, but because of what the church taught me. Both Joseph Smith and the teachings in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, uh, Messiah, um, that taught me what it was like to be a true Christian. And and I think that's served me well. The education has served me well. Staying away from alcohol has served me well. Um, who knows, you know, the law of chastity mm-hmm. may have uh, saved me from getting a girl pregnant. You know, I I don't know what um, my life would have been like without the church, mm-hmm. uh, but I see a lot of good that came out of it. Yeah. Um, I no longer see that good in my life or in the lives of others, and, yeah. and not everyone. There are some mm-hmm. for which the church continues to work perfectly, and it did for me for decades. Um, but I to everything, there's a time and a season. Yeah, you have to graduate sometime, and, <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. it's new. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Is there, as we probably time to wrap up? Is there anything else you feel like you want to to share before we wrap up? No, but thank you so much for inviting me to, to tell my story. Oh, and you. now what I'm eager to know is what if the story was a revelation for Beverly? <laughs> <laughs> How much of it had I already told her and, and which ones hadn't I told her? But anyway. I mean, you'll get to have that conversation the right home. Did you know everything that he shared? She's nodding her head, yes. Oh. Okay, good. <laughs> there, go. <laughs> there, there weren't any two... There weren't any rude surprises. Oh, um, actually, part of it was made easier because uh, an ex-brother-in-law of mine uh, asked me about my loss of faith. Yeah. And for him, I did give the full story. And um, and I put it in writing. He lives mm. in South Africa. And, and Beverly read that. Yeah. And so I think that might have been the most, um, although... I obviously didn't say all the same things here yeah. that I said in my letter to him. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, that whole, the, the idea that, that we have, the incongruent truths that live within us, I think can be a beautiful thing. But when we're when we're feeling like we're living somewhat of a lie where we have to put a mask on, that, that yeah. I, I would, I wish more and more people would really start honoring who they yeah. really are, what they really feel, what that soul aspect and that light of Christ within them that's right. calling them to see these other aspects um, is is speaking and have the courage to live in that space to where, yeah. you know, it, it does take courage. It does take courage to tell your partner, you know, this isn't resonating for me anymore. It takes courage to step out. But there's so much more freedom when we do that versus, you know, like your son trying to be something that he's not and staying in a religion that is requiring him to suppress who he is. Right. You know, that that's not good for anybody. And uh, it's not something that I think, in my experience, we should never, we should never be doing to our yeah. children. Yeah. I, something that I've learned from you, both listening to your podcasts and, and is you have found a purpose and, and you're seeking and and I would say that I was doing a lot of seeking 
at that point of transition where I was starting to have doubts about the church, etc., and I was learning a lot and 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 you know, I've stopped seeking and mm. I admire the fact that you continue to seek. I do seek pleasure in nature. Yeah. Um I I like getting outdoors and hiking and taking photographs and and, and so on. Um and so you know, some people would say I'd like to be out and about in God's creations. Yeah. I whatever however all of that was created and I'm inclined to f- follow the science of the explanations, but I feel at peace there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do s- s- see my purpose is to, and and I don't live up to these ideals. I, I, I'm not trying to say you know, I'm this great person, but, but I do look back to my youth and the teachings of Messiah and and Joseph Smith and and feel like I'm falling short in terms of helping my fellow man. Um, you and I are and at different like stages that. in life. You know, and I think yeah. at the end of the day, that whole, the scripture that you said that man, man is that he may have joy. Like at the end of the day, for me, it brings me joy in fulfilling this thing that I feel is so yeah. strong within me. And for you, it's connecting with nature. I don't think there's anything better or worse than either one of those. Yeah. You know, we're all wired so differently and we are in different seasons of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. So I I love that you're doing that. Yeah. I, well, thank you. <laughs> I would like to be doing more of that. <laughs> I, I, I have I retired. Um, was it eight years ago? And I haven't missed work for a day. Uh, Although I enjoyed my work, I had my small company. I did management consulting and training. Once I walked away from it, sold the company, I never had a yearning to go and consult or do corporate training again or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, and, and yet there I had, you know, lots of contact with people, etc. Whereas I think I've returned to my introvert roots, mm-hmm. you know, being out in the mountains by myself with my camera. Yeah. I, I relish it. I, I enjoy it. Um, and I, I, I yeah, so I am an introvert by heart. The church, mission, and my career sort of had to pull me out of that mm-hmm. comfort zone, but I think I've gone back into it for better or for worse. Oh, well, if you're happy, then that's yeah. that's what matters. Yeah. Well, thank Amanda, you. thank you so much for the interview. It's been fun and a pleasure yeah. to reconnect with you. You as well. I've really enjoyed your story. It's quite thank beautiful you. and fascinating and, yeah, just... Amazing. So yeah, thank you. Your first South African interview. Yes, I know. I love your <laughs> accent. I love that you still have this cute accent. I mean, oh, anyways, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you as always for joining me and for listening to this beautiful interview. I found myself quite captivated with Nigel's story. Not only is his voice just so beautiful to listen to, but his story was quite unique. And I really loved listening to his thought process and listening to the events that unfolded in his life that led to where he's at right now 
and the ability to still be in his marriage and have a healthy marriage and work through that with his wife still staying in, I thought was beautiful. And like I mentioned in the episode, Beverly, his wife was sitting with us in this space and she is a beautiful human being and someone that I've always, always really, really loved. And I was grateful that they had the courage to sit down with me because it does take courage to share your story. If you are someone that is feeling a call, that's stirring that like kind of your heart skipping a beat every time I say this on my podcast, maybe it's time for you to share your story. If this is you, reach out to me on social media or contact me through my website, amandajoyloveland.com. And as always, remember you are not alone. We are here to support each other in our journeys and support each other in breaking the chains that have defined us, that have held us back and have limited us from really truly living our fullest potential in this life. Sending you all so much love. Thank you.